Across the country and the world, young people, old, hell, all of us, we've all been waiting for the world to turn back on again. And while we wait, we wonder, is the Biden administration doing enough for the people who need government the most? Is our system doing enough? With the media caught up in its biases, uh, giving us stories with questionable sources, pushing us towards division with dishonest journalism, how can we break out of our old, broken patterns of thinking? I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes Dr. Rashad Ritchie of the Young Turks. Dr. Ritchie is the host of Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and his show is launching on the Young Turks Network on Monday, June 7th, with his first guests being U.S. Senator John Ossoff and rapper and activist Killer Mike. So it's a very exciting time for him, for the Young Turks, and really for all of us uh, who have the opportunity to watch him. He'll be live weekdays, 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 p.m. Pacific on TYT. Um, and I really encourage you to go check him out. But tonight, Dr. Ritchie and I will discuss his unique perspective on the things holding our country back. What will it take to come together in unity and action? How can we change things before it's too late? And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Yep. You know what I mean? You've been doing, have you been doing um, your radio shows and all your stuff? You, um, you obviously haven't been in the studio for a good portion of last year, right? Man, I haven't been in the studio in about a year and three months. <sighs> they, built a, they built the radio studio inside of my home. Did so they? I broadcast. Yeah, I broadcast from my house every morning, every well, weekday that's, morning. It's going to be tough to get you to, to go back to the studio, I'm it, sure It's now. going to be impossible, Clay. <laughs> Do, but you have, co you have co-hosts or people who, who join you regularly, so they haven't been coming to your house, have they? Have you been just doing <coughs> the Skype thing? We have them call in, um, but it, it, it loses the video component that my radio show used to have. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're trying to figure that out moving forward. Yeah. Well, you're going to have your own video component soon with, uh, That's with right. the Young Turks. You're working with them on some stuff, yeah? Yeah, man. What Loving is that it. all about? Are you excited? Man, I'm hyped, man. I've been a fan of the Young Turks for years. So I'm trying not to act like I'm starstruck by these cats, man. You know what I mean? I'm trying <laughs> I, to act like I'm a professional. I know very well what you mean. <laughs> Actually, I think I met Jink um, and... The first time, maybe seven years ago at Politicon, and I remember thinking, man, holy crap. I mean, you know, I still get starstruck about around uh, a few people, and they have, they have certainly got an empire going on over there. And it is a, a nice, progressive-minded empire, which I'm glad more people see. Personally, I'll just be frank and honest that, you know, we needed that. We needed people speaking up on that side of the of the spectrum, so to speak, because um, it wasn't getting as much um, as, you know, some of the folks over on the right were getting on Fox. And I know, man. I all know. All their interesting stuff. But you started out in journalism, right? Well, kind of. So, you know, my start is it wasn't, it wasn't planned. I was in politics and then got into radio. Mm -hmm. And I did like a community show where I tried to be in the middle of stuff, like, you know, just kind of tell the facts. And I realized, man, that's not me, right? I'm, I'm a guy that I want to give you context and the facts. I want to give you both. I want you to understand um, what it means to be an advocate. I, I give an example because I, I lecture in mass communications at a couple of universities. 
and I lecture on something called advocacy journalism. And, and this is an example of that. If you go to a southern Georgia town, I live in Georgia, you go to a southern Georgia town and you're a reporter. Do you really want to give the side of the KKK? I mean, if, if you're reporting on racism in Georgia, do you really want to get the side of the KKK? And, and usually the answer is no, because we have deemed their point of view to be so extreme uh, and so racist and bigoted that we're more concerned about getting the side of those who have been victimized. And the truth is, in journal journalism, Clay, there has always been some level of bias it doesn't matter what kind of journalism you engage in, right? You have, what, two or three minutes to tell a story. That means you as the producer or the writer or the journalist, you have to say, here's the part of the story that I think is important. That's already bias. So there's always bias, always perspective. Because it's what you think is important or what That's your right. editor or, or producer does, right? Exactly, man. Yep. So, but but there's there's still an argument to be had for... Well, let me change the way I say that. Okay. I, I agree with you. There's always been some sort of bias. To me, I feel like it's a little more dangerous when that bias happens and people don't own it. Um, you know, yep. I feel like it, I watch MSNBC. Listen, hell, I watch Fox sometimes because I like to see what the other side's talking about. Um, but I watch MSNBC a lot and I do at least understand and respect that for a time period, for a period of time, their slogan was lean forward. You know, they, they sort of embrace what their bias is. The evening hosts on Fox embrace what their bias is. There are quite a few people on other channels, other networks, um, broadcast and cable, who suggest that they are unbiased journalists, but are still very biased. How how dangerous is that? Because I think you you've just said it yourself. Biased journalism is going to happen because we're all human. Um, how confusing can it get when a a network or a or a program or a one particular host or whatnot tries to say that they're not biased and yet still is? Clay, it becomes detrimental. If it's your opinion represented as your opinion, don't represent it as fact. If it's your point of view represented as your point of view, don't represent it as hardline news. I'm also um, president of a of an urban publication. Before I became president of that urban publication, I was their chief editor. And I made sure all of my writers drew the line and made the reader aware of opinions versus a hard news story, okay? Here's why it's detrimental, Clay. Once you start representing opinion as fact, that's when you get into what I call an occult-like following, where they become a bubble of information, or they're inside of a bubble of information, and they're so indoctrinated by the deceit that you spew out as fact, that when fact is in front of them, they can easily dismiss the fact as fake news. And you start to create an ecosystem of deceit and conspiracy theories, and you eat all of this junk, information junk all day. And what happens, Clay? 
January 6th happens. An insurrection, a terrorist attack at the U.S. Capitol because people believed that this was hardcore news they were receiving, but it was propaganda. Why did it take until Donald Trump for a lot of these other journalistic outlets um, to fight back against, uh, I don't like to use the phrase, the term fake news, <laughs> but, you know, we, uh, the Washington Post slogan, the truth dies in darkness, right? Yeah. Um, that really sort of became their banner when Trump became president. Um, and, and we started seeing a lot of journalist groups and journalist agencies and, and outlets and networks talking about the importance of good, honest journalism and really making a more concerted effort to fight back against um, misinformation and real fake news and propaganda. Mm -hmm. But it didn't start in 2016, did it? I mean, did it, is, is, Trump, is Trump who started this or was Trump a product of it? Hell no, Trump didn't start it. Trump, I give Trump credit for this, man. He peeped something we didn't peep. He saw something we didn't see. Remember when he said that he could commit murder and his people would still follow him? Remember he said that? And nobody and, believed him, but <laughs> lo and behold. Right, exactly. We laughed about it. We made jokes. We made commentary about it. Uh, people said, oh, this guy's off his rocker, right? Uh, we can't believe he said something like this. This is insane that he would say something like this, but he knew something. He knew how to exploit democracy. And, and really, the, the biggest vulnerability in democracy is a free press, because a free press is what really keeps democracy honest. And if you can start to control the very press, you can control or start controlling elements of democracy. Fox News became the de facto propaganda minister for Donald Trump. And he utilized Fox News, his Twitter account, and other avenues in order to control the narrative, in order to control his own PR. Well, he knew this because he comes from a background of marketing. This is what we call binary marketing, something that Trump is very familiar with. And binary marketing simply means that you present your product in a way where people have to vote it up or vote it down. There's no in-between with binary marketing. He took that concept into politics, binary marketing. He knew that he would piss off a lot of people. He knew that he would, he would garner haters, but he also knew that he would garner loyalty like no president has seen in modern history. So, but Fox News, and I mean, I, we're talking about this in large part because you're, you're joining and a part of a, a ups, not, not, certainly hell is not an upstart network. Your show will be a new part of this um, Young Turks network, um, but... They are, you know, so you're part of the media world. Yes. So that's why I've all of a sudden gone down this rabbit hole about media. Um, Fox News didn't create it either, did they? Didn't they? Didn't Roger Ailes back in the 90s um, tap into something himself? And what is that that Roger Ailes tapped into in the 90s and, and kind of built his occult-like following yeah. um, for Fox News around and then... Donald Trump tapped into in 2015 and 2016. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of misinformation, and I I look around. I'm in North Carolina too, so my, myself, so we're both in very purple Southern states. Um, but 
I look around, as I'm sure you do too, and I see people who I believe strongly are otherwise incredibly intelligent folks, but who have fallen for some real misinformation. Um, and I can't help think it's because Fox News tapped into a way to they Fox News knew what those people wanted. That's right. What what is it that they wanted? What is it that Donald Trump was able to feed into that maybe Democrats need to learn from themselves in order to help deprogram a few people? Man, it's interesting you bring that up because I agree with your analysis. So so let's try to dig let's try to dig at what is at the bottom of it. Indoctrination means you you don't have the ability to critically think about what you believe. There has always been indoctrinated people in America. There are people who truly believe that black folks are somehow intellectually inferior. Uh, there are people who believe that white people are the ones who have it bad in America because of all of the all of this new diversity and political correctness, as, as they will call it. They truly believe these things. It's like this, Clay. When, when you go on social media and you're looking at a picture and you know you're in the picture somewhere, your brain automatically starts to look for you in the picture. And you look for you in the picture before you look for anybody else. You may appreciate everyone else in the picture or some people, but you really look for you. Because I need to see if I got a booger. That, that's right. Something, right? You, you need to look, you look for you. You look for yourself, right? right? You look for yourself. What was happening, and this, this isn't just about news, it's also about the, the advent of new technology, the 24-hour news cycle, more diversity and, and opportunity for consumers to consume information. Consumers wanted to start seeing themselves. And Roger L. came up with an idea. He said, you know what? I want these people to see themselves in this news network. Now, why was that important back then? Because America was diversifying and becoming this woke nation to where we were challenging the norms and the evils and the sins of our past. As in a the country. 90s, you think we were already getting there in the 90s? I, I think we were talking about it. Okay. Um, I also believe Bill Clinton took us back by being a moderate who said it was a Democrat, but that's a different conversation. I believe we were having the conversation the narrative was starting. The progress was happening, not to the level I would have liked to have seen, but it was there. You had this, this consciousness in America that you did not have. And it was, it was breathing, but it wasn't thriving. And for the individuals who wanted to hold on to this old ideological point of view and embrace their biases and their prejudice, that America was taken off away from them. That's why they have slogans like Make America Great Again. That's why they had uh, movements about America first. What are they talking about, Clay? They're talking about how things used to be before all of these people got rights. <laughs> Except for they don't want the taxes we had in the 70s. Um, <laughs> right. They don't want that part, but they right. want the other stuff. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, so do you think that there has been any healing done at all since, um, since the new administration took, took office in January? Do you think that there has been um, uh, progress made or do you think that we're treading water still man we're treading water brother we're treading water um biden is not a transformational leader he's to me he's the right guy for the job right now 
but he's not the guy that's being transformative as far as folks' hearts and minds and souls, et cetera. The truth is more people have always sided with those on the left and those on the right in modern history. Trump never won the popular vote. Uh, so you, you, you have an American population who said no to his kind of leadership. The majority of the American population said no to him. He became president because of the antiquated electoral college system. He did not become president because the vast majority of Americans wanted him to be president. So the country, by way of pure numbers, population, the country indicted the leadership of Donald Trump. But you still have a significant portion of the country who says this is the kind of fellow we want to follow. And he embraces some of the most extreme um, prejudice racial elements or racist elements we produce in our country. He became a personification of that for the political moment. He did that. He's great at, at sticking his name on something and calling it his. But as far as healing is concerned, man, I, you know, we really got to analyze that. I don't think we find our healing in politics, Clay. I don't. Well, that's for damn sure. Right. Um, <laughs> but we got to find it somewhere. We, we do have to find it somewhere. I think politics plays a large part in policy. Policy is basically the social contract between the community and the government. You start getting better social contracts, you get a better, more holistic community, and you can start the process of healing. But as long as the policies allow for disparity, allow for distrust, allow for a jacked up criminal justice system, um, racial bias in the workplace, as long as you, you have policies that actively protect and actively do not check those things, you will continue to have hurt, mistrust, anger, and chaos all across the country. So I, I, I love that you said that because I've always said that policy and policy is more important than the politics of it. Yep. But you also said that Biden, I just want to play devil's advocate for a second, because you also said Biden is not to you a transformational or transformative, sorry, right. president. And I think some might argue that he has been, I mean, we've seen it in a lot of op-eds and a lot of press in the past few weeks, that some of his proposals, his American jobs plan, um, of course, obviously the, the COVID stimulus package, some of the biggest um, policy proposals since LBJ, um, certainly the most spending since probably Roosevelt, um, those policies are... I think the goals of many of those policies are to be transformative um, for people at the on the ground level, you know, mm -hmm. for, for, to the, the bottom line pocketbook issues, making sure people have good jobs, making sure that we um, uh, make them green jobs and, and current jobs that that won't be outsourced or offshored. Um, would a person who doesn't play the politics game would uh, listen i love bernie sanders and people who have listened to this show know that i loved bernie sanders back in 2016 um but would someone who doesn't play the politics game as much as biden does have been able to pass some of the stuff that he's been able to pass no that's why he's the right man for the job right now uh, his decades as a u.s senator his ability to negotiate um, has proven to be somewhat effective, even though he still has contention inside of the Democratic Party with Senator Manchin and others. Uh, obviously, Republicans, they're still operating in their tribalism and they're saying no, no, no to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a unique figure in politics. 
I think he's the right guy for the job right now. And I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't say this about the current president. He's a good man. He has a soul. He's been through a lot, but he wears his humanity. He's learned some things in politics. I, I fundamentally believe he's still a transactional leader. That's not bad. That doesn't mean you're bad. I teach uh, psychology of leadership at the university. Transactional leadership is not bad. That's just his style. But he's not a transformational leader, but he's able to present transformational policies. And there's a difference. He may not fully believe in some of the things he's putting on the table. I'm okay with that. Remember, he had his White House staffers answer questions about their previous drug use, and some of them admitted that they had used marijuana. Well, according to those staffers, they were under the impression through the supervisors that, hey, you know, not a big deal. Just tell the truth. You'll be okay. And uh, he fired them. That White House fired those guys, right? Um, I thought that was horrible. Uh, but to me, that's because he's not there in that transformational space as it relates to that. But he's able to present policies that can be transformational. Isn't everything going to be nitpicked? By, I mean, you, it's just impossible at this, at this point, Dr. Ritchie, to get anybody to do anything that's going to make everybody happy, right? That's correct. You know, if he had not, I don't, I, I don't, not read up on that particular situation, but had he not fired those folks, they would have become targets from the Republic, for the Republicans for the next four years, right? So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the better choice in hindsight would have been just don't ask anybody. There you go, brother. Um, My but, brother. That's the point. Just, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, I, I think, I think we all make, I mean, how many times have you, or especially me, tweeted something that sounded like it was the right thing to say at the time Absolutely. and then found out the next day, oh shit, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, now I forgot what I was going to ask you. Um, he talked to me about Joe Manchin. You mentioned Joe Manchin. Talk to me about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and who else would fall into that bucket? John Tester, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Mark Kelly, because um, you've talked, you've mentioned, you kind of alluded to them uh, as a contingent in the Democratic Party. Your thoughts on them? I have more thoughts about what Biden should do with them. Okay. And, and yeah. Yeah. Let it. me tell you what I believe. Joe Biden is what we call an institutionalist. He actually believes the presidency should mean something. Trump came in and totally was a wrecking ball with his leadership. And Biden is a guy who believes in this sanctity of the presidency. That's extremely noble of him. And he's coming from an authentic place when he believes that. He also believes that there are certain things you don't do in the Democratic Party. Like, for example, you can't be a Democratic president coming against a Democratic U.S. senator. He doesn't believe in that. He needs to start believing in that. I, I want you to think about the stakes here, okay? The stakes are really high. We're talking about massive legislation. Massive legislation, that includes minimum wage increase. That includes health care reform, true health care reform. That includes a voter rights bill that's federalized so that these states can stop passing voter restriction bills. But who's in the way of that? People like Joe Manchin, Democrats in name only. And these individuals are holding up progress when the American public voted overwhelmingly for the agenda of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But not in West Virginia. Well, not in, okay. But we're talking about nationally, right? So let me tell you what I would do. But doesn't Joe, doesn't Joe Manchin only represent West Virginia? Mm, not based on the Constitution. 
right? I understand. No, the, Constitution, the Constitution says specifically that senators are representatives of, the, of their states. And, not and of they the, are votes. Clay, I got you on that. And they are votes for their country. So, right. He has a political he has a political reality for the state that elected him. We get that. But constitutionally, he's a federal politician that votes for federal legislation for the country, not just for the state that elected him. So when you say he only represents the state that elected him, you have to really think about, is he voting for policy for the country? Because that means that every politician, every time they vote, should always say, I'm voting for one state. I'm not voting for the actual country. And, and that's a doctrine I think is very dangerous to engage in when we're talking about individuals who represent the nation. So, but, they, but well, I just want to push back on that because yep. they don't because, again, they don't represent the nation. I mean, that sound it sounds to me I'm just playing just I know mm-hmm. you like to keep it real. So I'm yeah. going to do it with you. Um, it sounds to me like Democrats are looking for themselves in that picture again. Mm-hmm. They're saying they're going they're looking at the picture and they're saying, where am I? What do I want? What is best for me? And the reality is a good politician, a good representative, House of Representatives, senators do the same thing should be looking at what their state wants. And I think if I don't know Joe Manchin from Adam, Mm -hmm. I know him from TV. I don't know Kirsten Sinema either, but I imagine that what he would say would be, I am doing my best to both do what I think is right and still represent what the people of my state want for the United States. And 70% of them voted for Trump. And no, I'm not going to side with Republicans just because 70% of my state did, because I'm still a Democrat. But I'm going to not rush all the way to the left because my state doesn't want that. So let me tell you why that's an important distinction that you just made. The difference between transactional leadership and transformational leadership is the guy you just mentioned, Manchin. Manchin is operating in transactional leadership form, where it is simply a transaction based on the people who elected him. Now, let's let's try to talk above that just a little bit, right? Leadership is not simply about being a reflection of the majority. If that were true, we would have never received a civil rights bill. We would have never received a voting rights bill. The vast majority of white America was even against Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself. In an NBC poll, he rated at 6% positivity among white voters. So if we always look to be a reflection of the community or the people that support or don't support, we would be a more jacked up country today than we are uh, now. Okay. I agree. So the but se- let me. But but just to continue the devil's advocate, because I'm now I'm having fun with this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if um if Joe Manchin were only voting based on the majority, yeah, then he would not have voted against Kavanaugh. He would not have voted against Gorsuch. He would not have voted for the stimulus package that just passed in February. I mean, he does vote against what the Republican Party wants a good chunk of the time, doesn't he? Sometimes he does. So remember, the transformational part that I wanted to talk about really quickly is that sometimes in leadership, man, you have to be the person that says to individuals in front of you, this is wrong. What you're telling me to do is wrong. And let me show you why I think it's wrong. Leadership isn't just about being an expression of the most extreme or being an expression of the majority. Sometimes it's about being able to articulate to that same group. Here's why we need to make an adjustment. That's the kind of leadership I'm talking about 
when, I, when I'm talking about transformational leadership. And we've seen people do it. We've seen individuals in the Republican and Democratic Party that said, I, I have to stand up for what I believe is right. Mitt Romney did it. Uh, we just had- Liz uh, Cheney. Uh, right. Liz Cheney has and done it. And you know we, what they got called when they did it? They yeah. got called Republicans in name only. <laughs> right. Which right. you and just called Manchin a Democrat in name only. I right. mean, they, and that's, they get the same thing from their party yes. that we give to Manchin and Cinema, right? But Clay, think about it, brother. Think about it. I'm just playing. I'm just. I know I'm just you throwing are. You I know the- you are. But but I, 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 we got to highlight this part. There are people in Mansion State who have suffered because even when the stimulus package passed, we had to take things out of the stimulus package in order to appease Mansion. So Mansion, and it was all a political play. So Mansion can go back to his state and say, "Hey, I voted for the bill." But let me show you what I got them to take out of the bill in order for it to pass. That's the way he appeases his moderate to right and right wing supporters. The fact that he voted for the bill in its totality is how he appeases his left and left leaning voters. He's playing a political game because he's in a really tough political state for a Democrat. But here's what Joe Biden should do. And this is my recommendation to Joe Biden. Threaten to primary him. And a lot of Democrats would disagree with me on this, Clay, because I I'll guarantee- be one of them, but I'll let you finish. OK, because <laughs> it's going to be really tough to get a Democrat in that seat. If you if you primary Joe Manchin out. Right. And you put in a new Democrat in that seat in a Democratic primary. It's going to be tough for that Democrat to become a U.S. senator in that state. True. 100 percent. But Manchin won't let it get to that. That's the point. If Manchin believes. No, I, think I, I don't think you would. And we I can think he would because that. he knows. Well, you know Georgia. I know North Carolina. Right. The most liberal, as much as I may love the most progressive nominee for Senate in right. North Carolina right. in 2022, they're not. They won't win the primary in North Carolina because North Carolina Democrats recognize we would not win that very purple seat away from, you know, it'll be an open seat here. We wouldn't win that seat if we nominated AOC here in North Carolina. As much as we may love her policies, mm-hmm. et cetera, we recognize we have to stop looking for ourselves in the picture and look for other people. <laughs> and, and that's we a strong just, like, just the way, argument. Just the way we did with Joe Biden, you know. For, from a policy perspective, I would have loved somebody like Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. you know, but I recognized I can't make it just about what I want because the the important thing here is making sure Trump's ass is gone. And so we've got to choose whoever it is that we believe is going to. And I think that's what the voters of South Carolina did. I mean, we talk about selfless voters. There were other candidates in that primary in South Carolina who I think a lot of South Carolina voters would have Democratic voters would have preferred. But they voted for Joe Biden because they realized We've got to win this White House back. And I think that Joe Manchin would recognize that a very, very progressive, you know, Bernie Sanders type nominee, it, a Dem- Democrats in, in West Virginia aren't like Democrats in Georgia or North Carolina even, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but say, they're not going to trust. Right? You're making an assumption that the well, replacement fair. would be some progressive. I don't think the replacement would even be a progressive. I think a replacement would would or should, if, if Biden did this, should be somebody in the vein of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a moderate who believes in some progressive policies. But remember, the vast majority of moderate Democrats voted for 
and are in support of these bills well, that Manchin opposes. Well, fair, but I tell you what, if I was Joe Manchin, I'd be even less afraid of a Joe Biden-like primary <laughs> nominee because there'd be no distinction. I mean, you got Joe Manchin, who's a Joe Biden-like moderate, or this other moderate who I don't know the name of. Well, vote for Manchin. He's been there for three terms. He was well, governor. Well, let me tell you the distinction. Okay. The distinction would be the policy. The fact that Joe Manchin, and you're right, they may be indistinguishable as far as their general politics is concerned. But here's where you make the argument for their difference. The policies that Joe Manchin has voted against had real world effect. We could have had an increased minimum wage reality. We've, we could have voting rights, the John Lewis bill. We could have the George Floyd Policing Act. We can have these things on the table. We can have these things laws. And yes, Joe Manchin will vote for some legislation connected to Democrats. And he's not the Mitch McConnell, no, no, no individual. He's not a Republican. He still has to do some things that are Democratic. So one, I don't assume that somebody uh, far left or progressive would be the replacement. And two, the, the argument would simply be a policy argument as to how his votes or his no votes or his lack of support have impacted adversely the communities, black, white, and brown, the communities in West Virginia. That's the argument you make. You make a sound policy argument and you make a sound argument about why Joe Manchin's votes or his lack of support for these policies have adversely affected the citizens of the state. And then you end up with a Republican in that seat afterwards, right? Isn't that well, what a lot of people would say? Isn't that what Joe Manchin would say? And well, Joe that's Manchin's exactly what he would say, and I expect him to say it. And the truth is, it's definitely a possibility, right? Well, you I mean, it's, it's probably, let's be honest, it's probably more than a possibility <laughs> because Clay, um, go I believe big that Trump go was home. elected in that state by 70-some percent of the I, vote. I know, brother. And, and, uh, and um, Shelley Moore Capito, I don't know exactly what her percentage was, but I know that was in the, it's, it has to be in the 60s. West Virginia is probably one of the reddest states in the country, yeah, but, but, and and it's a miracle and only God's blessing that that there's still a Democrat who's holding on to a Senate seat there, right? Clay, let me put it this way, man. Every bill that's important to my community, he voted against. All of them. We care about our voting rights being protected and not having state legislatures take it away. He's not supporting that. He doesn't want a federal. It hasn't come to the floor. It hasn't come to a vote in the Senate yet, though. H.R. But he, but he has said clearly he's not in support of it. He has said that, that he doesn't support it. He wants a bipartisan solution is what he said in an interview. Uh, and Republicans aren't presenting anything in a bipartisan manner as it, as it relates to federalizing the elections and protecting people to vote, people to exercise their right to vote. Uh, when it comes to the George Floyd Policing Act, he's not for that either. That's a common sense act mandates for police cameras to be worn by cops, uh, allows for the federal government to extend their power to investigate uh, rogue police officers. And 94% of Americans are actually for police reform, not criminal justice reform, but police reform. Out of that 94%, Clay, 58% of Americans are for dramatic police reform. 51% of Republicans are for police reform. And this guy stands completely against these bills. So maybe he should just change parties. Say that again? I said, so maybe he should just change parties. Oh, that would be lovely. Would it, though? Yeah, that would be lovely. Would I would it? rather, yeah, man, I would rather Because him, the minute he changes parties, Mitch McConnell takes control again. I, I would, listen, I would rather him change parties. And I understand, this whole control thing, man, 
Schumer ain't running nothing. <laughs> we, do you <laughs> well, really think Schumer's running something? No, Schumer not, not ain't really. running nothing, all right? <laughs> okay, we'll agree there. <laughs> okay, all right. So because of how it's brokered, I mean, it's the slimmest of margins, but Schumer is able to pick off one or two Republicans sometimes, and McConnell can pick off one or two Democrats at a time or two. Imagine is one of them, right? So when we talk about this, this is more like brokered leadership. This isn't some one person in control or the other. The reason why I would welcome uh, Manchin actually turning and saying that he's a Republican is because I think that many will feel betrayed in his state. Because there are people, there are Democrats. Well, certainly there would be, but they are right? only 35 percent of the folks who were there. I mean, they, he would he would be he would become a Republican and that would be a two Republican state. I mean, I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get get at is we've named Manchin's name. Um, yeah. Who else? Cinema, who has has faced a lot of the same criticism. Yeah. Um, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski is going to have a, a somewhat tough race in Alaska. Yeah. It's a little bit different up there. But um, Liz Cheney, we've seen in the last few weeks, although. Let's make no mistake, Liz Cheney is not in any way a moderate. But, but isn't it horrible what they Mitt did to Romney her? Mitt Romney is. Of course it's horrible what they did to her. But, but aren't Democrats doing the same thing to Joe Manchin and to <laughs> Kirsten Sinema? No. Come on, Clay. Come on, I mean, it's, granted, it's a very different situation. Liz Cheney is standing up for the democracy, period. <laughs> um, and that's why she gets voted out. But... But, you know, Mitt Romney did the same thing. Susan Collins didn't vote for certain Supreme Court justice nominees. Um, Lisa Murkowski has withheld votes from certain Republican initiatives. They've all been called rhinos. Yeah. Um, Mansion Cinema, they're all. I mean, it seems to me like the most dangerous place in America to be is somewhere in the middle. But when I speak to people, that's where 80 percent of Americans live. They don't live in a world where they are fully 100% in support of everything that either party does. They right. think both parties are full of shit and they just, you know, <laughs> right. so is there, isn't it strange that most Americans think that both parties are full of shit, but still somehow we expect 100% loyalty to each party. For our, me, from our politicians. Let me highlight something you said, man, about how people are treating Manchin and how they treated Cheney, Liz Cheney. The Republicans stripped her of power because she had the audacity to tell the truth about Donald Trump. Okay, that's different. Democrats need to do more of that to Democrats. The criticism that Joe Manchin received is typically not from other Democrats. It's from people across the country and some in the state, but it's basically the talk. It's not actual authority in D.C., Democrats in D.C., making these campaigns against Manchin. You literally had the leadership class. You said you wanted him to. Yeah, they should. You said you wanted Biden the, to, to the, primary him. Right. The problem is <laughs> Oh, Democrats so you're saying that Democrats aren't doing the same Correct, thing to Manchin brother. that they Republicans to. did to Cheney. Damn right. We need to do to Manchin what Republicans did to you Cheney. You need to take a, a page out of their playbook, stop being nice about it. There are people on the line. Why are there we fighting with people in our own team instead of the other one? Because they're not fighting as if they are on our team. Sometimes the greatest hindrance to progress is somebody in your own team. Think about the civil rights legislation of the 60s. 
It was actually stopped because of a filibuster. That filibuster was led by a Southern Democrat. That Southern Democrat utilized the filibuster to stop civil rights legislation. We were able to overcome that. I don't know what political trickery was used, but he put it aside. He could have effectively killed all of it. This is a person that was well, on the, the political team. trickery that was used was the talking filibuster because back right. then he had to talk for the whole time. That's right. He didn't wasn't able to do that, and they were able to get past the filibuster because he didn't talk. And and but so it that wasn't was just effective. him. But that it, was it wasn't just him. Right. But, he had a but team of people. Used, but, yeah. but because you had to continue talking on the floor, he and his compatriots were not able to over were not able to sustain that filibuster because the the Republicans and the the Democrats from the North were able to to overcome it. But don't to, you think that's squ- interesting, Clay? Well, I think it's interesting. Team. Well, I think it's interesting because that's what Joe Manchin says he wants back. He says that he's not against, he's not for getting rid of the filibuster, but he said that he's here. I am acting like I'm on his campaign. I'm not. <laughs> but um, but he says he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. He wants to return to the talking filibuster instead, where if you want to filibuster, you have to stand on the floor and hold the floor. That type of filibuster is the type that was used in the 60s and was unsuccessful. And so Joe Manchin has said, let's return to that, which would allow the Republicans to still filibuster if they wanted to, but we'd still be able to get our shit through when they, when we, you know, when they stop talking. But he was criticized because he didn't want to just completely do away with it. I think what you, the, the situation you just used as an illustration was is one that kind of shows that Joe Manchin's solution of talking filibusters probably would still allow a lot of the stuff that Democrats want to pass. Let to me tell you what passed. I said about that on Radio Clay. I actually said that's that's one of the almost brilliant ideas of Manchin. Is returning so every back. once in a while, a broken <laughs> clock is right twice a day. <laughs> I least, was going right? to say that exactly right. right? <laughs> that that was almost brilliant, and and hopefully, right? If I if I was Uh, Schumer or Biden, I would eventually embrace that in light of what we currently have. What we currently have is a stalemate that will never go anywhere. That's what we currently have. But is part of that stalemate because there are some people on, listen, let's just say, let's just assume this hypothetically. Republican, the Republican senators in this scenario don't matter, right? That they're going to vote against anything that Democrats want to do when it comes to changing the filibuster. Right. True or false? Yes, That's true. They're going to vote against it. Yep. Right. Now, of course, if the tables were turned, they'd want to get rid of that damn thing. Wait a second. <laughs> they did. But right, right now, they'll vote against it, which means that currently there are, if you consider the fact that Joe Manchin wants to do the talking filibuster, there are 50 senators who are willing to change the current rules on the filibuster, but one of the reasons that the talking filibuster proposal won't pass is because there are senators who are further to the left who will settle at nothing less than getting rid of it completely. At some point, don't the people on the left, on the further left than Joe Manchin need to say, okay, moving to a talking filibuster is not what I wanted. I'd rather get rid of the whole thing, but... Since right now we do have 50 votes and we could move to the talking and we could go with what Joe Manchin is suggesting, let's at least do that. I mean, how often is perfect the enemy of the good Um, for Democrats and Republicans who say, 
listen, we refuse to support this because it doesn't go as far as we want it to, when the truth is it is still at least one step forward instead of three. I appreciate the ideological stands of individuals in politics who are non-compromising to a degree. There comes a point in every business relationship where you still need to move the ultimate agenda forward. The, the part that you said, when you said to a point, right? Mm-hmm. That means you have to calculate as a leader, as an elected official, as a U.S. senator, you have to calculate when that is. I'm not sure if that's, if that's what it is today. It may be there next month or the, or the month after. You still got your numbers, right? Right. Uh, I think they have to decide what's the point. When is the point that we transform, transition? And yes, man, if it comes up to where we know we can't do anything with this filibuster and it is stopping all of the massive legislation that will actually transform this country, Schumer should put it up for a vote. And if individuals vote against it, let the record record it, let the people judge it. So we are, so you and I agree, we just, we calculate different times, right? We, we <laughs> our, definitely calculate, our calculate different times. Our, times, our ca- time right. calculations I want them to different. try to, to do that thing with Joe Manchin first to see if Manchin bites. Right, okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. But I do think that, there, that Joe Biden has even said himself that, you know, he w- is willing to put off the filibuster stuff to a point, and at, and like That's you said, right. to a point, and at some point, if we can't get anything through, then screw y'all. Um, I want to move on. We had a lot of folks who wrote in for, with questions. Um, uh, let me see a whole bunch of good ones. We'll start right there in Georgia. Um, although Tim is in Houston, Texas, Tim asks a question about Georgia. He says, yeah. how have the Democrats in Georgia been able to overcome electoral obstacles so much easier than the rest of the South? That's a great, a great question. Um, and we have new electoral challenges now because of Senate Bill 202. But right. let's talk about what happened before. You had in Georgia a massive get out the vote campaign. This campaign, um, I work for Urban Radio. We did something we've never done before in Urban Radio. We coordinated with sworn enemies in Urban Radio to do get out the vote. We were on each other's radio stations. We did events together. We paid money to bring in people to do virtual concerts. We ran commercials on everybody's network talking about our partnership. That helped. We also had individuals who engaged on the ground like never before. They knocked on doors, man, but we paid them. We had a lot of organizations that paid money to canvassers to go and talk to people about the message of these particular candidates, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, uh, and others. I mean, we we even, uh, we, you know, Lucy McBath, who's in a, a solidly Republican district uh, as a black female. Um, we have Carolyn Bordeaux, another solidly Republican district. She's a white female Democrat. Um, it was because of that energy, that ground game, and the consistency of the messaging. And here's something else that was a little different this time, Clay. And I get so damn tired of Democrats for playing black folks when it comes to electoral politics. Typically, the way Democrats have campaigned to the black and brown community is to excite them to vote, but they don't excite them by way of policy. They don't say, here's the policy agenda, here's what we can do for the community, but we need the support. Georgia changed that under the leadership of people like Stacey Abrams and others. They came up with a policy agenda, and that policy agenda was available 
everywhere. It was posted on trees at convenience stores. You could get it online. It was coming through your text messages, but it literally talked about things like access to higher education, jobs, um, affordable health care. It talked about COVID-19 relief, access to COVID-19 vaccinations when they come, health care uh, reform, criminal justice reform. And it had real policy meat on it. Man, that policy meat worked with the right execution of the message. That's how we were able to overcome some of the barriers associated with voting in Georgia. Okay, Justin from Nashville, Tennessee asks, does cancel culture dilute the message of diversity, tolerance, and acceptance? Sometimes I think we overuse the terminology cancel culture. Um, I don't like it. I don't like cancel culture at all. Um, you don't I, like the terminology or you I, don't like the, the phenomenon? The phenomenon. I don't okay. like the reality of it. And the reason why is because I lead from my heart. Uh, humanity is humanity. There, there's an African... Um, there's an African proverb that's summed up by the word Ubuntu. And Ubuntu means the spark in me recognizes the spark in you. And as long as you are breathing, you have that Ubuntu in you, which means you're not supposed to dismiss individuals or, or dismiss their humanity. I think we have taken disagreement too far sometimes. Um, but I get it. There are some people in my personal life you know, I've canceled. <laughs> yes. Oh, my Facebook is so much cleaner these days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Nick from Boston, Massachusetts says, it's hard being young these days. Where should we look for hope about the future? Man, you got to look at the problems. Look at your own mess. And let me explain that. Your message, M-E-S-S-A-G-E, your message to the world is your mess, M-E-S-S, with age on it, A-G-E. That's your oh, message. Oh, say that again. I want to hear, I want to write it down. Okay. Your message. Your message is your mess with age on it. Interesting. Whatever mess you have experienced, whatever mess you have witnessed, whatever mess you have encountered, let some age get on that mess and you will find your message. I'm a policy guy. Um, my doctoral dissertations, 100% policy related. Uh, I'm currently in law school and I plan to deal with federal policy. I just finished my first year of law school. Um, I've been a university professor since 2016. Let me tell you why I'm a policy guy, Clay. When I was 17, I got arrested. I got arrested for a felony at 17. I was a foster kid, a gangbanger, and I was on the streets. At 17, I get arrested in the state of Georgia and I'm informed that Georgia just changed their law where I was an adult. I was facing 22 years in prison and the judge gave me a bond of $22,000. Nobody was crazy enough to pay that bond because God knows I would not have come back to court, okay? So I stayed in that jail. In that jail, I had my God experience, changed my life, but I was still inside of jail. A year later, I get bonded out by a foster mom who said that she couldn't sleep until she bonded me out. This was on Christmas Eve, Clay. I had no present on Christmas Day, but I had the greatest present in the world. I had my freedom, right? I ended up still having to go to court for this particular charge. I'm 17, just turned 18. It's because of this new Georgia law, and the district attorney did not like the Georgia law. And he created a policy in his county that said anyone who is 17 
If they get charged with a felony in my county, I'm going to give them the First Offenders Act and they will not have a felony on their record as long as they serve it out. Clay, I took my GED under that First Offender Act. I got involved in a mentoring program under that act. I went to college. Today I have two doctorate degrees and I teach. I'm a department chair at the university I used to gangbang outside of. Okay, what changed my life? I'm a black man today, felony free because of the policy of one district attorney. That's why I'm a policy guy. I found my mess and I put age on it. And that's what he has to do. He or she who asked that question. You have to find your mess. Let some age come on it. And that is that's your message to the world. Who's that district attorney? Uh, Tom Morgan, J. Tom where's, Morgan. Where is he DA? now? DeKalb County. Man, he's making millions of dollars at a private law firm today. Well, you know what? He deserves it, damn it. <laughs> he damn sure does. Good for him. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. You need to have him on your show. I'm sure you have at some point, right? Man, I've reached out to him. Um, and him and I exchanged some messages a few years ago. Um, but I was able to get the judge on my show. Oh, I was nice. able to get the public defender who was involved in that case on my show. Her and I are good friends today. She still works for that same county, by the way. But now, now she's in charge. right there. Yeah, she, and she's amazing. She's in charge of juveniles being prosecuted as adults, and she defends them. She has a heart of gold. So she's been doing this saint. work for over 20 years now. Well, Tom Morgan's probably not listening to this podcast, but if he is, <laughs> I'm telling him he needs to definitely go and talk to Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Tell us um, about your show, your work with the Young Turks and what you're up to and where we can see you and hear you? Man, I'm thankful. Uh, and Clay, thank you for this opportunity, brother. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, man. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> like, this is a high honor for me. Oh, well, I, that's uh, that's very nice of you to say. I'm a new, huge fan of yours because thank I, you, I've brother. loved this conversation. Thank but you, I, now that's why I want to know where I can see you. Absolutely. All right. Uh, the show launches January, uh, excuse me, uh, June uh, 7th. It is a Monday through Friday show. 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. I engage in debates, news of the day, breaking news dialogue. I try to bring on as many conservatives as I can to chop them up uh, with my expertise and insight. Uh, and they try to chop me back up. And we also highlight movers and shakers. Our first week of the show, we got Killer Mike. We have oh, John, nice. uh, Senator John Ossoff. And we got some other surprises for you. Okay. Oh, good. Now, and that's on that the name of the show. It's on Young Turks Network, right? Yeah, on the Young Turks Network. It's indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Uh, here's the best way people can make sure they see the show. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube uh, channel, uh, Indisputable TYT. Subscribe right now. We got about 70,000 subscribers so far. Uh, indisputable TYT. Indisputable TYT. Uh, you will see my ugly mug. Uh, my picture will be right there. Uh, and you can click there, subscribe, and that show will air live there as well. And and I think you can also get TYT on YouTube TV and and, and um, everywhere, man. Pluto, Zumo, Pluto and all yeah, all the, all those streaming networks. TYT people who listen to this show absolutely know how to find the, the Young Turks Network. We've had everyone from the network has been uh, on, and everyone has been to Politicon as well. And next time we do a Politicon in person, you better be there. Um, I'm there, but, brother. Uh, <laughs> but um, I can't thank you enough. I mean, it's nice to be able to to kind of play devil's advocate and banter back and forth with someone it was fun, who man. also doesn't get angry when you do that, because that doesn't always happen on this show. Um, I've got to ask you, Dr. Rashad Ritchie, 
before I do, I'm going to I'm going to just remind people: Indisputable, two thirty p.m. starting June seventh. Yes, um, and uh, that's on TYT and the YouTube page um, that you should follow. The YouTube channel you should follow is Indisputable TYT. Um, so that's YouTube.com/slash/IndisputableTYT. Uh, Doctor Rashad Ritchie, how the heck are we going to get along? Man, I hate to break it to you, brother. We're not. We're not all going to get along. And that really should not be the aim. The aim should be peaceful coexistence. Not that we all get along or all agree, but that we all respect the other's independence. That's the aim. 